Welcome to the Nonprofit Newsfeed, nonprofitnewsfeed.com, bringing you the best news from the best sector, news from a nonprofit perspective and what matters. This show brought to you by Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thanks for joining us. This week on the Nonprofit News Feed, of course, brought to you by Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. My name is George Weiner. I'm the chief whaler. And we have Nick Azule, the digital strategist over at Whole Whale, who is also an expert at explaining what's going on in the news. This week, I think we can jump right into it. I'm particularly proud of this title, Nonprofit Gets Their Feet Wet with Jesus-themed Super Bowl spots. Nick, what did we see during the Super Bowl for these ads? George, you love a punny headline, and that takes us into our first story, which is that a somewhat unusual 60-second ad spot and an additional 15-second spot for the ad campaign, quote, he gets us, made a stir for being among the largest ad buys by a registered charity. If you don't remember, the ads featured images of people washing feet of others within diverse communities, experiences, and circumstances, and closed with an acknowledgement of the fact that Jesus himself was non-discriminatory in his feet washing. Of course, a campaign for you know, <laughs> proselytizing the good deeds of Jesus. Interestingly, the nonprofit behind the campaign is named Come Near, which is an organization formerly named Servant Foundation and had previously run ads in 2023, but have rebranded under new leadership. This was kind of opaque to folks watching the Super Bowl and you're like, all right, Jesus washing feet. Okay, we're going to do that for 60 seconds. It was kind of a an interesting one and, and prompted some investigation. But an interesting kind of tidbit is that ad spots for the Super Bowl this year cost approximately $7 million for 30 seconds of airtime. So ostensibly, this organization was paying tens of millions of dollars for these ad spots. Who is funding this? It's a little bit opaque. The organization has been criticized for loose ties with religious right Hobby Lobby founder David Green, though the campaign on its website states that Jesus loves gay people and Jesus loves trans people. So it's unclear specifically what the position is on some of those social issues are within religious debates. But George, this was kind of an interesting one. And I think we wanted to talk about it because it brings to the center something that, again, is known but not frequently discussed. Religious organizations make up some of the largest charitable organizations in the United States, account for a significant portion of charitable giving. And here we have a high profile, high profile example of a religious affiliated charity spending big on the biggest game of the year. I think I look to a macro trend that it seems like, you know, why would a general, you know, Jesus love does loves everyone type of messaging, which actually on, on the surface is very, uh, you know, inviting, it's inclusive, you know, it's kind of like a big tent. I think this is part of the realization that is expressed in these Pew research studies with regard to the rise of religious nuns. <laughs> not nuns as in the church, but as in, I am not affiliated when asked about my religious affiliation. And those numbers, and we'll show you charts, but there is a significant decrease in people identifying with Christianity. And that is down to 63% in the last survey. And religious nuns has risen to 29 and like, if you look just back to 92, those in 1992, when those surveys were being done, a religiously unaffiliated survey 
respondents were saying, you know, in the under 10% and you had around 90% for people identifying with Christianity. So that shift is something I think that is alarming to many people in in, in working in religion. So I think this Super Bowl ad, you know, I think by by the numbers, since like, you know, it's 7 million for every 30 seconds. So back of a napkin, they spend at least 17 million on just the spots is an attempt to try to counteract that that trend. The Super Bowl was the largest watched Super Bowl in history. So they got a lot of viewers. And, you know, I'm kind of curious if any of this extreme advertising spend results and any shifts in these these pew religious affiliation survey results yeah george i think that's exactly right we've been following those pew numbers for a while be interesting to see how they shape up over the next couple years yeah i will also say the foot washing landed a little weird with the internet (laughs) and a lot of questioning folks about the you know confusion of this and sort of foot fetish commercial summaries that a lot of news outlets had and online communities have been having a a bit of a laugh over. So, you know, it's, it's tough to find a message that's going to resonate with everyone, but uh, it got people's attention. I'll say that. That it did. That it did. I don't know. I'll just add that. I'm happy the Chiefs won. I was reading, rooting for Kelsey and and Taylor. Come on, Niners. Uh... Come on, Niners. (laughs) Chiefs have won enough. No, that's fair. Patrick Mahomes, he can't be stopped. And Taylor neither can Swift we. doesn't lose. She just doesn't lose. <laughs> no, she wins. She's a perpetual winner. And you know who else is a perpetual winner? This podcast, because we're going into our next story, and this is from AP News, and it states that as DEI policies come under legal attack, philanthropic donors consider how to adapt. So... There's been a pushback, George, of DEI as a concept, DEI policies, particularly underscored by debates that stemmed from debates about DEI on college campuses, but also in corporate America. And this story says that philanthropic donors are gearing up for a legal tussle as diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives come under fire. The lawsuits challenging programs like grants for Black women entrepreneurs. Foundations are responding by providing legal support, while some are subtly changing their language to avoid controversy. So despite the challenges, major players like the MacArthur Foundation remain committed to supporting DEI efforts, viewing philanthropy as the last stand for independent action in society. But George, this is kind of this is kind of an interesting one. Yeah, I think using the courts as, you know, the legal battleground for saying whether or not this is legal for discrimination and attacking certain groups. There are foundations, there are nonprofits actually on both sides uh, of this, both leading the charge on some of these lawsuits, and then also offering to defend people that are coming under these lawsuits. So it'll be to the up to the courts in some cases of saying like, oh, no, you can't have an investment fund that only invests in black women. And, you know, will they find that discriminatory or not? You know, groups like the Carther Foundation are still, you know, doubling down, remaining committed and supporting DEI efforts. And at a high level, we're also seeing pullbacks in DEI staff and investment at Fortune 500 companies. You know, those articles sort of like they're like it's like a drip. It's a steady drip that I have seen. I don't see any stats that I can put a finger on. What is interesting, though, is 
I was looking at Google Trends and we're still at a relatively at a relatively high general interest for uh, DEI as a search term and a concept. And so I can't tell if that's because of interest or infamy uh, for, for where we are in the cycle, but uh, it hasn't decreased in terms of public interest and exploration. Yeah, George, I think that's a, a sound analysis. And I'll take us to our next story from Yahoo Finance. And this is a piece about woman Elizabeth Rose, who is trailblazing the research behind Open Research, which is formerly YC Research, that is spearheading a significant universal basic income study initiated by, wait for it, Sam Altman, the OpenAI CEO. So the study, which uh, concluded its cash transfers to 3,000 participants in two states, aimed to explore UBI, or again, universal basic income, as a solution to potential job losses due to AI advancements, with findings set to be released later this year. George, we have a quick rundown for folks who may not be familiar with the pros and cons of universal basic income. Let's let's start off that conversation. Let's kick it off. What are some of the pros of universal basic income? So actually, UBI, universal basic income, let's just start at the beginning. It's essentially a government program that would guarantee a regular base amount of money regardless of need to a certain population. And fun fact, you know, this is something that connects folks like Thomas Paine, Napoleon, Martin Luther King Jr., and even discussions in ancient Greece. So this is not a new concept, but clearly this is something that we're paying attention to now because of the rise of AI and in the aftermath of COVID. So here is a quick breakdown, not that I or Nick supports one way or the other, but here are the pros of universal basic income. And then Nick's going to come at us with some of the cons that are classically talked about. So on the pro side, why this is a good idea, we have poverty reduction. We have an economic stimulus that would inject cash into people that need it. And we have another option here is a fosters creativity with basic needs covered. Individuals will be able to pursue passion, start new ventures, and reduce the stress of living paycheck to paycheck. It simplifies welfare. So it could streamline complex social systems and reduce some of that bureaucracy and maybe introduce efficiency. So the final piece here that you know Sam Altman's paying attention to is that the tech transition buffer as AI comes, potentially taking, removing, shifting jobs. This may be a solution to how AI might cushion the blow for displaced workers. So those are my quick rundown of top pro arguments. Nick, what do you have on the other side of the fence? Yeah, George. So for top cons, one is cost concerns. Of course, universal basic income comes with a prep hefty price tag. Who's picking up the tab is not exactly clear. And it may be a, a hard sell to taxpayers that could potentially be considered to foot the bill for universal basic income. There's also concerns about work disincentive. The, the work disincentive here, critics worry that guaranteed cash might lead some to trade their briefcases for beach towels, right? So the idea that if you have a basic income that disincentivizes work, but that gets into some kind of sticky political arguments that <laughs> we can we can leave out of the podcast for now. But there are concerns of inflation risks, right? Would universal basic income, UBI, increase inflation? Inflation is a real thing. We saw that with COVID. Also, our four and five cons are that 
it misses the target and there could be unequal impact. That is that how UBI is distributed across the country to folks who need it for different things, whether that's education or healthcare, could be inequitable. Also, right, George, you and I, we live in San Francisco, New York, respectively, a very different kind of cost of living analysis for folks who live in the middle of the country, say Nebraska. So does universal income get prorated to cost of living? That becomes a whole thing. So there's a lot of potential concerns about equity and some of the politics on the con side of universal basic income. Thanks, Nick. It, I'm glad that there are organizations doing the research and able to do that research. You know, Sam Altman funding that study across two states and seeing what comes back. You know, it is hard to extrapolate a sample size of 3,000 to 300 million in, in the U.S. You know, we had an experiment with COVID, but uh, again, that wasn't a pure experiment. I think there's I think there's implications for for nonprofits. The, one of the points that I made inside of there, the you know the pro on removing the bureaucracy of the distribution of funds locally, right? That often come through government services that are run by nonprofit nonprofit programs inside of cities get funded by government dollars, taxpayer dollars to help vulnerable populations. You know there is the question of is is that layer in many cases unneeded would it be better served to simply write a check and the answer is not yes or no as with many things it is nuanced but i think there are many nonprofits that should this go forward might need to change how they deliver services or frankly remove from the process and it is is something that i'm curious to be like watching as as we go forward the actual work the other thing that there is a, a great documentary called It's Basic. I encourage you to go find it premiered at the uh, Tribeca Film Festival in, in 2023. It, it really walks through what it actually looks like. So if you're somebody who's like viscerally one way or the other on this, and I have, I have gone from one side to the other, and I think it's important to like watch what it actually looks like and just see how practical it is when you hand somebody who's living below the poverty line, $500, like where that money goes, uh, especially if you have children, <laughs> it, it really helps you understand it in a different way. The final concern I have just about these, these studies that happen is sometimes giving somebody a, a temporary period of time in that research and then suddenly taking away the extra assistance can sometimes do unintended damage to the audiences that you study. So, I mean, I don't know who I'm saying be careful to, but that is always in the back of my mind. The the folks that we run these, you know, research reports on and, and studies from a uh, social impact standpoint can actually end up worse off in, you know, some cases when they learn to defend, uh, depend on uh, a higher standard of living and then it's suddenly taken away. Yeah, George, I think that's, I think that's uh, a great a great analysis. And this is this is a classic. This is kind of at the cutting edge of kind of like social charitable research and gets at yeah. the heart of, you know, how do we effectively measure successful programs? How do we run programs or, or test pilot programs ethically? So it'll be interesting to see the, the findings from this study led by the Open Research Foundation. All right, George, the time has come for Feel Good Story. This one comes from the inimitable journalists at People Magazine. And this 
story is about otters that paint Valentine's Day artwork for charity at the New Hampshire Aquarium. A group of five Asian small clawed otters named Harry, Teddy, Peanut, Jelly, and Sacco at the Living Shores Aquarium in New Hampshire have been creating Valentine's Day artwork for charity. The otters, they they go out, they 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 put paint on their paws, their flippers. Otter safe uh, and- paint. Otter safe. Otter safe. Otter safe. Certified otter safe. And then the paintings are going up for auction. And of course, the proceeds go back to help with ocean conservation and the, and the programs there at the aquarium. George, this is a great idea. I would gladly put a otter painting in my living room. Yeah, you're a otter art aficionado, would you say? I am. I am. I love otter art. No, a good tie into Valentine's Day. I hope everyone has, you know, a, a strong fundraising idea or plan or something to roll out to engage your audience. It is a it is a great holiday for, I think, generating campaigns. All right, Nick, I do have a question for you. All right, let's hear it. I think you know what's coming here. Uh, what does the Red Cross Earthquake Relief Team say to their donors? What does the Red Cross Earthquake Relief Team say to their donors? We help, even though it's not our fault. Oh, God. They, for the record, don't actually say that, but it would be funny if they did, because fault, it's not their fault, but, you know, fault lines cause earthquakes. I think right. it's much better when I explain these things. George, you've been having earthquakes over there, haven't you? <laughs> It's it's been on my mind as a Californian right now, and so yeah, you know, uh, it's not it's not our fault, but I'll leave it there. Nick, thanks as always. Thanks, George. This has been the nonprofit news feed summary of the week. Thanks for joining us. As always, you can find resources at nonprofitnewsfeed.com, and don't forget to sign up for our weekly email summaries of the best news from the best sector.